Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning. How many of you are the baby of your family? Okay, when you're the baby of the family and you're a guy and you have three older sisters, from an early age you are taught how to do Mother's Day right. So on Mother's Day, my sisters would get me up early, and we'd go into the kitchen to make mom's breakfast. Now, at first, they didn't let me do anything, but eventually, I got to do the orange juice. Back then, people didn't buy a big jug of orange juice. What did you do? It froze in orange juice, and they had the big cans, and they had the little cans, and we only got the little cans. And it's like a tube of cardboard with frozen orange juice in there and two metal ends. And so I'd take off a metal end and scoop it out and try and get it to dissolve. You had to pour four cans exactly in. And that, for a family of six, that meant everybody got a little glass of orange juice and woe be to you if you took more than your share. Um, so I got through the orange juice. And um, meanwhile, my sisters fixed eggs and instant coffee and toast with jam. Uh, they carefully fold a paper napkin. And they arranged everything neatly on one of those big trays. But this was the kind back then that had a Fold-out legs? Yeah, you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I'm talking to you, yeah. And uh, then we'd knock on the master bedroom door and exuberantly take breakfast in bed into my mom, who would always pretend like she was surprised, although I'm sure she'd been up for a while and gotten back in bed and everything, and she was always pleased. And we would give her a handmade card with a message of appreciation, like, the best mom in the world, or we love you, or they made a mistake up in heaven we bet their faces are red. We asked for an ordinary mother, and they gave us an angel instead. And then all four of us kids would sign the card, but my sisters really made it. So I, after a few years, decided to branch out and make my own card for mom with very impressive poetry like roses are red, violets are blue, bet you can't guess who made orange juice for you. Um, you can use that if you want to next Mother's Day. It's okay. But my mom deserved every bit of the praise and honor we would give her. She had a tough life. When she was young, my father kind of swept her off her feet with his charming self. He was very charming. They married before she finished college, but it soon became apparent that my dad had problems. When his mother died, he went into depression, and that would cycle back in his life periodically. Um, he passed the bar in Arkansas, which is where they grew up, but he didn't pursue law. I think he did a short stint of accounting. Eventually, they ended up in Pennsylvania trying to be dairy farmers, and the barn burned down, killed the animals. It was awful. He went from job to job. Uh, he was able to talk his way into just about any job, but he didn't stick it out, not more than a year or two. Not wanting to be like him is probably one of the reasons why I've been here longer than any other senior pastor. Um, so my mom was a tired young mother, some of you can relate to that. And my dad was not a reliable breadwinner. My, mom was so, my mom's life was so difficult and bleak that she cried dejectedly when she found out that she was pregnant with me. She was sure they couldn't manage a fourth child. Now, my mom did not have a biblical worldview, and so she confided to me many years later that had abortion been legal at the time, she would have aborted me. Um, Dad got worse, alcoholism, drugs, mental illness, short stints in jobs, no job, and mom was the glue. And when I was nine, she went back to school, got a teaching credential. When I was 11, my parents separated and divorced. My mom raised us as a single, man, a single mother on a teacher's salary. She loved us, she was heroic, she was noble, she was hardworking and self-sacrificing, and she deserves to be honored by me and my sisters for these attributes and accomplishments. 
The fourth commandment says, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. When we have loving, heroic, self-sacrificing mother or father, I know not everyone does. If we love them, we will want to honor them. And although we honor even parents that aren't good ones because of their position, when we have good parents, we honor them for their good attributes and their accomplishments. Now, once Janice and I had three kids under the age of three, and I was changing diapers and getting barfed on and getting up four or five times a night to get them drinks of water, take them to the bathroom, probably those two were connected, um, or to rub their back or tummy after a nightmare, I finally realized a bit of what my mom had done for me. And Janice and I have always worked as a team, and that was tough enough, but my mom did most of it on her own. My mom deserves to be honored for her good attributes, her perseverance, her self-sacrifice. We'll put some pictures of local sunsets and um, some Google pictures of stars. A A flower or a sunset deserves to be honored for its attribute of beauty. The Golden Gate Bridge, I'm an engineer also, and the Golden Gate Bridge deserves to be honored. It's got a beauty all its own, not just because it's, because of the engineering, because of the design, because of the massive construction. Astounding performances in sports or the arts, they, they have a beauty. They should be honored. All of creation deserves, deserves to be honored for its, its size, its complexity, the creativity of God, the beauty, the diversity. So a flower or a sunset We say it has its glory, a glory that emanates from it. The Golden Gate Bridge has its glory. A great performance has its glory. You might say, that symphony was glorious. Last night I went outside. I looked up in the sky and saw the stars and talked to God. The stars have glory. Just as I want my mom to be honored and praised for her good attributes and achievements, we want God to be honored and praised for his attributes and achievements. We want him to be glorified. Glorifying God is appreciating, honoring, and praising him for his attributes and achievements. Now, this is the fifth message in our series commemorating the Reformation, the the Reformation period that kicked off 500 years ago. Uh, We've been looking at the five solas, and we'll put them on screen. These are Latin, sola scriptura, by scripture alone, sola fide, by faith alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, solus Christus, through Christ alone, soli Deo, gloria, glory to God alone. And so we're on the fifth one today, glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. Didn't I just say that the flower has glory? Didn't I just say that an athlete doing a great performance has glory? How can I say glory to God alone? Well, they also have their glory, but when the reformers said glory to God alone, they weren't talking about that there's no glory in a sunset. And there is, of course, the thing since God created the athlete or the musician or the sunset that the glory also um, is given to him. But there is a a glory that uh, you have. You may not realize it, but you emanate glory. Just being made in the image of God, you emanate glory. Also, when you do good and heroic things, when when you sacrifice for your children, it's beautiful, it's glorious. So why do we say all the glory glory goes to God alone? All the glory goes to God alone. Now, pretty much everyone and every culture ascribes glory to some things and not to others. When you don't have a biblical worldview, it can be very tempting to ascribe too much glory to a rock star or an athlete or in Jesus' day to an empire. The Roman Empire 
had gone around and brutally wiped out all of its neighboring kingdoms, killing hundreds of thousands, enslaving more, raping, pillaging, oppressively taxing. And do you know how they thought of their empire? Glorious. Because it actually was the nicest empire up to that date in history. Had the rule of law, trade, dependable coinage, common language, roads. For centuries of stability, they called it the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And it brought so much prosperity to the region. I only learned this a few years ago. It brought so much prosperity to the region that for a thousand years, scholars would argue about whether or not the Roman Empire was the pinnacle of prosperity and civilization. And from then on, it would go downhill until Jesus came again. So, a biblical worldview does not say that there's nothing praiseworthy about the ancient Roman Empire. Biblical worldview gives credit to Rome for its achievements, but doesn't forget its atrocities. Nor does a biblical worldview say there's no glory when Yo-Yo Ma plays the cello or Tom Brady throws a football if you prefer Derek Carr. Um, Everything good has its own glory. But not all glory is equal. Some attributes are much more glorious than others. Some achievements are much more glorious than others. Now, what I'm going to tell you today is not easy but it's really valuable if you can start working it into your understanding of life. Because when we recognize and value glory from a biblical worldview, the difficulties of life, and everybody gets difficulties now eventually, take on a deeper and more glorious meaning, and they will give you more joy in the midst of the difficulties and after the difficulties, and they'll give you perseverance. So a robust understanding of glory and of the glory of God can be immensely helpful in your life. Now, if you've read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, um, and I highly recommend that you you read it all the way through both, and then do it several times, and a good easy way to do it is have the audio of the Bible, and instead of just going straight through, do 1 and 2 Corinthians, but do it about four or five times in a row. And what you will realize is that the church at Corinth broke the heart of the Apostle Paul. He was their spiritual father. Many of them had met Jesus through him. He started their church. He trained them and then left to continue spreading the gospel. And some other people came in and they were strong leaders. They were great orators. They were apparently very forceful. They ordered people around. They badmouthed Paul and people were buying it. So Paul feels forced to defend himself to tell them why they should regard him as an authoritative apostle and their spiritual father. Now, in the ancient world, the way you defended yourself in a case like that was to boast. You started telling people about your accomplishments. We have, they have, I think, more than one great big stone where the emperor, Caesar Augustus, he's the one that came after, a little bit after Julius Caesar. He was Julius Caesar's adopted son and supposed to be the heir, and there was some civil war, and then he takes over. But he has chiseled in writing on a big stone all of his accomplishments, boasting. We have big stones from over the top of the entrance to Roman bathhouses. Someone would become very prosperous, and they would build the public bathhouse, and they would chisel their family name up there so that everybody knew they had more glory. They were better. Archaeologists have those things. So the culturally appropriate thing to do, the thing that that Paul's detractors had been doing in Corinth, 
when they were bad-mouthing him, was to stick out your chest and boast of your accomplishments. Well, Paul had impressive accomplishments. He could talk about all the people he'd healed, probably hundreds. About casting out demons, probably hundreds. About being bitten by a poisonous snake and not dying. About God freeing him from prison with an earthquake and the chains falling off. He could talk about raising the dead. All those accomplishments. And those are the kinds of things that would have turned heads back then. They would have established your credibility. But Christianity comes in and dramatically changes that worldview by saying, yes, there is value and glory in those things, healing people, raising the dead. But there is another glory that is far greater. So how did Paul defend his apostleship to the people he loved in the church of Corinth who had broken his heart? He lists the humiliating suffering he's experienced. Flogged, 39 lashes, five times. Beaten with rods. Those are thick sticks, three times. Stoned once, left for dead. Shipwrecked three times. He goes on to say, A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And although he's been used to heal probably hundreds of people, he goes on to explain how he has this awful physical ailment. He calls it his thorn in the flesh. And God won't heal him. It's a humbling ailment. You see, if you want to follow Jesus deeply and not just superficially, and I hope you do, you need to develop a biblical worldview about glory. See, when Jesus died, when he was crucified, that meant that automatically no Jew and no Gentile was going to believe in him as, the God, as God. Because they all knew that heroes don't die on a cross. The cross was reserved for the worst of criminals. It was humiliating. It was awful. And they knew that nobody who was victorious died on a cross. Certainly not a God. It took not only the resurrection, but the apostles being eyewitnesses of the resurrection and then doing powerful miracles themselves in Jesus' name and then the Holy Spirit coming and speaking to people's hearts for anybody to believe that some guy that was crucified in a backwater country called Israel or Judah, Judea could possibly be God in the flesh. The Apostle Paul defends his accomplishment by writing about his sufferings, not about his accomplishments. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he noticed that no, none of the disciples had been humble enough to wash the feet of the other disciples, so he decides to do Lays aside his garments, girds himself with a towel, pours water into basin, and begins to wash the disciples' feet. And after that, he says, I've given you an example that you also should wash one another's feet. He's showing them what it means to be a servant leader. And then it says he's very troubled. And he says, one of you will betray me. John asks him who. He says, it's the one I'll give this morsel to when I've dipped it. He dips it and gives it to Judas. And Satan enters Judas. Judas immediately goes out. And this is what it says in John 13. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. And in him, God is glorified. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, this is 
Jesus who was part of creating everything. This is Jesus who walked on water, who calmed the storm, who fed thousands with a few loaves and fish. This is Jesus who cast out demons and healed the sick and raised the dead and was followed by thousands. Jesus who was transfigured on a mountain and brightly shone with glory, and yet he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now, all of those wonderful achievements, they, they were glorious. Healing people or being transfigured on the mountain or his dominance over death as he couldn't be held by death and rose again. There is glory there. But it's when Judas is left to betray him and he's about to go to the cross that he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. I'm going to read to you from the book of Revelation chapter 5 and this is one that it just doesn't make sense to stay seated. Would you, would you mind standing if you're able? And as I read it, I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things that I never ask you to, well, one of them I never ask you to do. Um, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, not yet. And I'm going to ask you to imagine the scene because it's about glory. And to the extent that you're comfortable, go ahead and close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. And you can look at me if you want to, or you can put them lower, you can, whatever you're comfortable with. We're Presbyterians, this is hard for us. <laughs> but I think it makes all kinds of sense given what I'm about to read. From Revelation chapter 5. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Worthy is the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Would you be seated? It is true that everything proclaims the glory of of God. The heavens proclaim his glory. The flowers proclaim his glory. When you perform well, you perform his glory. When you love others well, you, you proclaim his glory. You were made in his image, so even when you mess up, you're still proclaiming his glory, just not as well. When Jesus healed people and cast out demons and fed thousands, that proclaimed his glory. When he walked on water, when he raised the dead, when he was transfigured, that proclaimed his glory. When he lived the perfect life and resisted all temptations and when death could not hold him and he rose again, that proclaimed his glory. It all does. But I think that we have good reason to believe that the nearly infinite suffering that he went through on behalf of his enemies, you and me, his voluntarily becoming the lamb who was slain will perhaps be the greatest proclamation of his glory. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And far, far greater than my desire or your desire to honor 
a mother or a father for their sacrifices, I know that when I see Jesus face to face, I will want to honor and glorify him with everything that I am. His glory will inspire all, all to worship. As the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You know, we're, we're not that good in this life at spontaneously worshiping the Lord. Then we will be. But we practice honoring and glorifying Him here every Sunday. And if you're not in town, I urge you, find a good church and go to it. And if you are in town, we'd love to have you here. But we need to practice. We need to remind each other of the gospel and help each other with a biblical worldview. I urge you to make it a priority. Also, more importantly, more centrally today. Prepare yourself to suffer unjustly for Jesus and his bride, the church. In 1 Peter 2, we're told that that's part of our calling if we're following Jesus, to suffer unjustly. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And he doesn't mean that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't do it all, that it wasn't finished, that he didn't pay for all his sins. What he means is, you know, somebody's got to take this gospel to the Gentiles and they're going to get clobbered. And that's him. And that may be you and your family. That may be you at work. That may be, it may even be you in a church. It happens. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men treated the prophets who were before you. We're just hardwired to think that our greatest moment of glory is when we win, when we accomplish something great in our career, or we successfully launch our children, or we become highly accomplished in a sport, or music or the arts, and all of those things do indeed have their own glory. I'm not in any way discounting that. You know what pastors often think of, right? You know, preaching to tens of thousands or, you know, everybody who comes forward, they get healed of their back pain or whatever it might be. But I've come to believe that for all of us, our greatest glory is when we suffer unjustly. And if we will shift our worldview to prepare our hearts by learning and experiencing. This is not something you just walk out of here today and go, got it, never need to hear that again. We have to experience it over and over. Suffer for Jesus and his church. And then even our most painful experiences take on a deeper meaning. They take on a glory, which I strongly, I'm, I'm certain, we will be grateful for for all eternity. Perhaps more grateful than those great accomplishments that we at the time thought, oh, that's my glory. We come to recognize suffering as a privilege. It may just be our greatest privilege. All of this prepares us to understand the fifth sola, 
to the glory of God alone. What were the reformers so concerned about in the 1500s? We've read Ephesians 2, which is very central to the Reformation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are justified and saved from the wrath of God through faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. Even in our best moments, we are flawed. We are never perfect. We cannot earn any part of our justification. It is all accomplished by Christ alone. Therefore, all the glory for your justification, all the glory for your salvation goes to God alone. Romans 3, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. All the glory goes to, uh, to God. You have earned n- none of it. You know, oftentimes in history, whether it was the Romans attacking their neighbors or people attacking different countries, the aggressors, mostly men, they will get, gather together. They are in an army and they defend their families and their homes and their country. They are trying to keep their families from being murdered or enslaved by the, back then by the Romans um, or worse. Jesus has fought the battle to rescue us from enslavement and death. He won the entire war by suffering much more than we can imagine and dying. When we take any credit for our salvation, we're like a coward who during the battle hid. The battle was to save his family from murder, rape, enslavement. And while the battle was raging, the coward hid. And then after the battle comes out and claims to have played a big role in the victory. When we claim any part When we want any of the glory, it diminishes what Christ did. It misunderstands how deeply sinful we are. And it severely limits our perception of the glory of God. It diminishes our ability to worship. It will also inevitably cause you to doubt whether or not you're saved. Because in your heart you will know you are not that good. Never good enough. That was what was so terrifying for Martin Luther. He was the best monk in the whole place. He was confessing the tiniest of sins. He was whipping himself and going without food and walking out in the cold, doing anything he could to become the person who was going to earn part of his salvation the way he had been instructed that he had to do it. So he lived in dread of the wrath of God because he was aware he might have been the best, but he wasn't good enough. See, one of the beautiful and helpful truths of the Reformation that contrasted strongly with what Martin Luther had been taught was that you can have absolute certainty that you are right with God. The Apostle John lays out a number of things and repeats them in the book of 1 John. You can read it. Things like, if you are experiencing the Holy Spirit, if you're unable to just keep on on a path of sin, if you believe in Jesus, if you love the other followers of Jesus, these are four of the marks of a Christian. They should give you confidence that, yes, indeed, you've been adopted into God's family, and he will never let you be snatched away. Last week, we looked at the four C's. We'll put it on screen again because I want you to memorize it. You can have confidence if you have correct content, who Jesus is, his person and his work, and conviction that is growing, that it's true, not just a guess, and commitment to him as your Savior and Lord. And if all of that results in change, not some people change more, some people change less, but change of your heart, you have good reason to believe that you can be absolutely certain 
but you belong to God. See, God wants you to have that certainty. It's very difficult to glorify Him, to worship Him when you don't have that certainty because you're wondering if maybe you've been good enough. Martin Luther's uncertainty and dread motivated him to hate God for a while. You're not good enough to earn any part of your salvation, but Jesus is more than good enough. He has earned it all. He freely justifies us to God so that we can have a gracious, loving relationship with God. And once you sense the Holy Spirit in you, once you see him making changes, once you know that you have believed in the person and work of Christ and you have that conviction, God wants you to be absolutely certain that you're part of the family. You're going to be with him for eternity. And that... It's a beautiful thing that will release you to love him back and enjoy him. The chief end of man, the Westminster Confession says, is, or Catechism says, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. They go hand in hand. Paul writes, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot have peace with God if you think you have to earn part of your salvation, if you get part of the glory. Christ alone accomplishes redemption. All of the glory goes to God, and life is much more beautiful and much more peaceful and much more glorious when you believe that. Last Sunday night in Las Vegas, evil motivated a man to use automatic weapons to shoot into a crowd of 22,000 people. Last count that I heard, kill 58 people and wound over 500. The man did horrible, it's a horrible, heinous atrocity. I hope you will continue to pray for the people impacted by that. But even in the middle of that horrific situation, there were heroic, noble, and glorious acts that gave glory to God. There was no trampling. People at their own risk boosted people over fences. They, they helped the wounded. They ripped up their shirts to staunch the bleeding. By the time paramedic Dan Weber arrived, triage had already put tags on the people waiting to go to the hospital. Green for minor injuries, yellow for non-threatening, non-life-threatening, red for life-threatening, and black for dying. And he described it as pure hell. He said, we had to take the red-tagged patients first, but it's not always easy. One woman grabbed my ankle and we locked eyes. All she could say was, please... She had tears all over her face, but she was tagged in yellow. And there were people in red, so I had to say, I'm so sorry. Someone will be back for you soon. There was a man tagged in yellow who said, I, I have a new baby. Please save me. You have, to, you have to understand that the yellow tags can become red tags really fast. They're all losing blood. They're in pain and going into shock. We went back again and again, maybe 15 times. We were just trying to save as many lives as we could. It's heroic. It was noble. It was glorious of that paramedic. Trying to save as many as he could. It's a lot like our own mission to make disciples, to save as many as we can, only they often don't even know they need rescuing. It's a lot like Jesus going through hell to save as many as he could. I was struck by 
the glory of one situation. Clay Wilson, 48, he shoved his bride, Kelly, 46, under some chairs and draped his body over the chairs to shield her from the gunshots while people were being shot all around them. It was heroic. It was noble. It was glorious. Couldn't help but remind me of Jesus being draped on the cross, dying for his bride. Heroic, noble, glorious. Give him all the glory. Don't, don't try to earn any of it for yourself. He set you free from trying to earn it. Know you've been rescued so you can be loved unconditionally and loved back. Just give him your life. Love him back. Enjoy his glory. And now, some parting words from Pastor Rick. When you love well, there's glory in that. And when you help people, there's glory in that. And when you sacrifice, there's glory in that. When you suffer for others unjustly, there's, there's glory in that. And all of that proclaims the glory of God. But as you go this week, would you think of that scene in heaven when it's the lamb who was slain who is worthy of so much glory and remind yourself that he did it all, that all of the glory of your salvation, of your justification, it is all his. And thank him every day so that you would not do it on your own. May you now receive the Holy Spirit, be filled with all the power you need to live for the glory of God, to praise God and give him glory, even if it means suffering. God bless you. Go in peace. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website, at www.carmelprez.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.